Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we learned about the various wars fought by Relambo, the king of Imerina, against his Sakalava, Fasimba, and Sihanaka enemies. Assisting Relambo in his later campaigns was his younger son, Andrian Jaka. Despite his younger age, Andrian Jaka's genius leadership during the conflict, combined with his brother's severe board game addiction, led him to being proclaimed as the heir apparent to the Kingdom of Imerina. And, in retrospect, it was definitely the right choice, as Andrian Jaka would go on to foster for himself a legacy of not only one of the most successful monarchs in Merina history, but as the progenitor of several generations of peace and prosperity. Season 4, Episode 8, Andrian Jaka, The Indivisible Son In the year 1612, Relambu, the man who had been king of Imerina for as long as most could remember, fell deeply ill. This time, the illness was no mere test of his son's character, and the king expired that very morning. In compliance with the old king's wishes, he was buried in a tomb in his capital of Ambuhidrabibye, just next to the tomb of his mother. Mourners gathered as the body of the king was wrapped in textiles and laid into his resting place, muttering the proverb, or, just as he came through the wooden door, he will leave through the stone door. Over the coming decades, Rolambo's skeleton would be occasionally exhumed in order to replace the shroud of silk which encased his bones, but his time as a king had come to an end. Control over Imerina was now firmly placed, according to his wishes, in the hands of his youngest son, Andrian Jacques. Now, even before Andrian Jaka had risen to the status of king, he had long planned what his first decision would be. For years now, he had coveted the town of Analamanga, a Facinda settlement located on a hill between the lands of Alsora and Ambuhitrabebie. The circumstances behind Andrian Jaka's desire to conquer Analamanga are pretty ambiguous, largely due to a lack of clarity about earlier events involving the Merina relationship with their Facinda neighbors on the hill. We discussed the matter in our episode on Andrea Maniello, so to refresh your memory, Andrea Giacca's grandfather had, for quite a few decades earlier, tried his best to conquer the people of Analamanga. The problem is that the Tantara Niandreana, our main historical source on the early Merina kingdom, diverges with three distinct retellings of how this campaign supposedly went. Varyingly, Andrea Maniello either defeated the Fasimba and slaughtered the residents of the town, or, in another version, he still defeated the Fasimba, captured Alamanga, and forced its inhabitants to scatter in multiple directions. Or finally, in yet another version of events, the people of Alamanga actually defeated the Hofa, and Andrea Maniello never managed to capture the hilltop settlement at all. Obviously, which version of events we believe here is going to dramatically alter the way we view the context of Andrea Jaka's conquest. But, perhaps the latter story can give us some better perspective on the former. So, let's get into it. Upon his elevation to the position of Mpanjaka Merina, the conquest of Analamanga was Andrianjaka's most immediate goal. Not only did he seek to conquer and integrate the hill, but he actually wanted to also make it the site of a new royal capital. There were multiple motivations at the root of this desire. The hill of Analamanga was the most imposing in all of Imerina, towering over all the nearby hilltops. Its height gave Analamanga practical and symbolic significance. 
any fortification at the top of the hill would be practically impossible to besiege. Additionally, anything built on the hilltop would be plainly visible to everybody in the surrounding area, making the area perfect future grounds for an ostentatious royal palace. In terms of location, Analamanga was located in the center of Merina lands, between the two largest towns in Alasora and Ambujitrabibie. Setting up his capital at Analamanga would allow him to easily govern both sides of his kingdom more efficiently. Possession of the highest hill in Merina would also strike a chord symbolically. Merina, after all, means the people who live in conspicuous places. And there is no better way to show that you are the king of the Merina than living in the most conspicuous place of them all. Merina villages typically signified political power with height, the homes of Andriana being primarily placed at the peak of a plateau, with the homes of wealthier Hofa below them and poorer Hofa below them. By building his capital at the tallest peak at the center of his kingdom, Andrianjaka was certainly making a powerful statement, not only of his own power, but of affirming the unity of the lands around it, both metaphorically and literally living between the lands of his grandmother in Ambohitrabibie and his grandfather in Alasora. With all of these factors considered, you can sort of understand why Andrianjaka really wanted to make Analamanga his new capital. It was simply the perfect location and he would do anything to make it so. So, he immediately got to work traveling around his kingdom and recruiting the largest army that he could. Now, keep in mind that Imerina was still an incredibly small kingdom at this point, essentially two medium-sized towns and some surrounding hamlets from there. While we have no reliable estimates from this period, given the small geographical area of the kingdom and low population density of the era, it can be surmised that the kingdom likely didn't even eclipse a population of 10 to 20,000. Remember those battles we learned about last episode? Well, I hope you weren't imagining grand clashes between massive opposing armies, because the reality would be disappointing. Remember, Imerina was a small enough kingdom at this point that a single, average-sized raiding party was an existential threat. The so-called armies fielded by Ralambu were, in fact glorified militias. If Andrianjaka was going to capture Anlamanga in its safe, defensible position, then he would need to raise an imposing, unprecedented force. Pushing his Andriana subjects, as well as the local demes, to supply him with the largest levies possible, Andrianjaka managed to raise a substantial force of a thousand men. The first Merina army to ever reach a millennial scale. With this relatively massive group of men at his disposal, Andrianjaka marched to Analamanga and demanded their surrender. The Fasimba defenders, seeing no hope in their situation, surrendered without a fight, and agreed to vacate their hilltop home. Now homeless, the Fasimba refugees scattered in multiple directions, with families finding refuge among various other populations beyond the hills of Emerina, be they Sakalava, other non-Merina Hofa, or elsewhere. How we interpret the tale of Andrianjaka's conquest of Analamanga depends heavily on which version of historical context we believe. Assuming that the story is true, which, given how heavily repeated it is in Merina oral and written histories alike, I think we can take it as such, how does all of this fit into the supposed wars fought by Andrea Maniello to capture the coveted hilltop generations before? Seemingly, we can at least partially discount the idea that Andrea Maniello had managed to successfully capture Analamanga decades prior. 
After all, had Andrea Manello really conquered the hilltop in the brutal manner described, why would his grandson have to go back and reconquer it? Well, there are some details in the series of events that make me think twice about fully discounting the idea that Andrea Manello did capture the town. Namely, there's the strange detail that the Fasimba gave up without a fight. Sure, you can interpret this, as the story does, as them being simply overwhelmed by Andrea and Jaka's numbers, and that they then recognize the futility of defense. On the other hand, I think you could make a compelling argument that, rather than a hostile invasion, that Andrian Jaka was simply formalizing and solidifying an already existing rule over the hilltop. Now, this is just my personal hypothesis and is based entirely off of my own speculative reading of the source material, but perhaps Andrea Maniello did successfully capture Anlamanga, but allowed it to remain as an informal subject kingdom, allowing the Fasimba king to continue governing his own daily affairs while pledging loyalty and tribute to the king of Imerina. Rather than conquering the territory for the first time, Andrian Jaka was simply evicting his subject king so he could build his new capital on the hilltop. Or, on the other hand, we can believe the more generally accepted idea that Andrea Maniello's campaigns against Analmanga were simply unsuccessful, and that they were probably a misremembered retelling of Andrian Jaka's rule that was anachronistically attributed to his grandfather. Regardless of whether the Fasimba were simply frightened by the scale of Andrian Jaka's army, or if they were already Merna subjects and were simply in no position to resist their formal takeover, Andrian Jaka had now captured his prized hill without firing a shot. In commemoration of the men who aided him in the town's capture, Analamanga was renamed in their honor, Nitanarifu, or the City of the Thousand. This name would gradually shift over time to become Antanarifu, and the hill in the center of Amerina would also shift to become the largest and most populous urban center in the entirety of Madagascar, as well as the island's top cultural, economic, social, and political hub. For the moment, though, it's important to remember that Antanarifu was not yet the dominant center of Malgasi life that it would one day become. It was the newly established capital of a small kingdom in the center of the island, Imerna was, also by this point, not an especially wealthy kingdom. Compared to their coastal neighbors, who had the ability to import and export to the rest of the world with ease, Imerna was actually somewhat poor, with the vast majority of its inhabitants being subsistence farmers. It shouldn't surprise you to learn, then, that when Andrian Jaka set up to build his new royal residence to accompany his new capital, he didn't exactly break the bank. Andrian Jaka's palace which in the future would be better known by its nickname, Besakama, was a humble one-room home, unless you count a storage space in the attic as a second room. If you'd like to learn more about the design of Besakama, the architecture of early Highland Madagascar more generally, as well as what some of the island's architectural motifs from this era symbolically represent, you can check out our newest premium episode, which will focus on that topic at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Also, since we are rapidly approaching our 200 supporter goal, there will soon be a live poll on the Patreon page about the topic of our next Between Season miniseries. Last time, you all chose the Sokoto Jihad, which was a truly awesome subject to make that miniseries on, so hopefully we can pick a topic just as much fun this time around. And to those of you already supporting the show, a heartfelt thank you. Andre and Jaka's additions to the hilltop at Antanarifu extended well beyond his own home. After all, he sought to truly transform the peak not only into a royal residence, 
but into a fully-fledged capital. For starters, he ordered that the tombs of all future Medina leaders were to be built near this new royal residence. To ensure that the construction of the tombs followed all the proper protocols and specifications, he brought in a spiritual advisor called Mpandro to help him out. Without going on to too much of a tangent, Mpandro, or Maker of Days, were the best-respected astrologers in Imerina. They were like the head diviner in a regional community, providing assistance in interpreting Sikiji to younger sages and advising kings and Andreana on spiritual matters. The Mpanandro showed Andreanjaka the exact locations in which he should build his tombs relative to his home. Construction on the first of these royal tombs, in which Andreanjaka would one day be put to rest himself, did not begin until later in the king's life, but their location was determined even at this early date. The hilltop's walls and defensive moats were also refurbished, turning it into a sturdy hilltop fortress known as a rofa. For this reason, the future center of Merina life, the capital district of Merina's capital city, would be forever known by the name the Rofa of Antanarifu. Finally, the Rofa also contained a public square, as well as a few homes for close government advisors and trusted family members. With his capital now in working order, Andrian Jaka sought to reform the system of religion within his kingdom. His father, Rolambu, had of course introduced a new practice of venerating objects that acted as taps of spiritual power, known as Sampier. These new objects of worship had proven remarkably successful. A little too successful, in fact. The problem that started to plague Imerina was not people refusing to take the Sampier and their power seriously, but quite the opposite. Instead, the objects became so respected and renowned that, well, Everyone wanted their village to receive the respect and admiration from being associated with its own locally acquired Sampie. In the later years of Ralambo's reign, suddenly just about every town in Imerina had some random person claim that they had made or discovered a new Sampie. With no official canon or doctrine about what was and wasn't Sampie, the whole issue was beginning to cause a bit of a problem. After all, the power and prestige of the Sampie came chiefly from their rarity. If everyone was starting to claim to have a Sampier, the mystique associated with the objects would surely start to steadily decline. Not to mention that the royal monopoly on the objects from which Andrianjaka drew his legitimacy would surely dissipate as well if every random dude in the country was claiming to encounter one on a daily basis. To prevent the emerging problem of Sampier inflation, Andrianjaka laid out a deeper official doctrine surrounding the objects. For starters, he asserted a strict limit on the number of Sampie in the world. That was, that there were only ever 12 official Sampie. And, if you couldn't already guess, these original 12 Sampie were the 12 Sampie that were held by the official, royally appointed guardians in their associated villages. All of those other objects that people were claiming were Sampie? Well, Andrian Jaka didn't want to denounce them too heavily. Keep in mind that rumor had already begun to spread of miracles worked by these objects, and trying to discredit those stories of miracles could be seen as discrediting the supernatural power of the Sampie more generally, something which he certainly did not want to do. Rather, Andrian Jaka simply declared that these new Sampie were, in fact, merely odier, the spiritual batteries that could extract and store spiritual value, or hasina, from a Sampie, but could not create hasina on their own. While the door was left open on the idea of potentially new Sampie being created in the future and exceeding that 12 Sampie limit, Andrian Jaka announced that the new Sampie would only be considered legitimate if the foremost existing Sampie, Kelly Malasa, 
confirmed its existence. Given that Kelly Melassa was an object who only directly communicated with the king himself and its royally appointed guardian, this meant that, in reality, Andrianjaka himself had restored the essential monopoly on spiritual power within his kingdom. It's also possible that this period, with the consolidation of the Saint-Pierre, is where all of those earlier stories of Kelly Malassa's mythical prowess during the reign of Relambu originated. After all, it would make sense that in addition to wanting to diminish the significance of these newly created religious objects, that Andrian Jaca would also want to craft a more legendary backstory for the Saint-Pierre most associated with the monarchy. Now, with an official royal doctrine surrounding the nature of the Saint-Pierre promulgated, Andrian Jaca had restored the king's monopoly on spiritual power. Almost. That is, except for one other thorn in his side, the Fasimba. Since the birth of the Merina kingdom, the Fasimba population had proved to be a confounding issue for the royal dynasty. On the one hand, despite the various conflicts fought between the Merina state and their neighboring Fasimba kingdoms, it's not like Fasimba were entirely absent from Merina. A minority population of Fasimba had existed in the kingdom since its establishment, and during Andrianjaka's rule, they still lived among the Hofa. Due to their perceived mystical nature and ancient ancestral roots to the land, they were also given elevated social status as Tompontani, meaning native owners of the land. Of course, Andrianjaka and his ancestors themselves had benefited from this arrangement, as he himself was of partial Fasimba heritage. Many of the Andriana throughout Imerna could also claim partial Fasimba heritage due to their associated prestige. The problem was that, due to their elevated spiritual prestige, the Fasimba were a threat to Andrianjaka's monopoly on religious power. After all, what would happen if one of Andrianjaka's official court seers made a prediction, and that prediction was contradicted by a Fasimba shaman? Such an incident could harm the distinguished reputation of the monarchy, and its spiritual advisors. Additionally, the presence of the Fasimba threatened the legitimacy of the concept of the state itself. After all, the state in Malgasi society received its authority from two sources, the Saint-Pierre and the ability to control ownership of the land. With the gradual erosion of the power of the Demes, or extended Hofa families, the Merina state was now the primary agent deciding who owned which pieces of land. In a sense, the Merina king positioned himself as the true Tompontani, who could himself decide which nobles were and were not allowed to make use of his legitimately owned territory. The mere existence of the Fasimba, as the native landholders who everybody knew predated the existence of the Merina state, threatened this paradigm. How could the king claim to be the true native owner of the land, after all, when the Fasimba are right there? Why should he be the legitimate arbiter of who is allowed to own land in the first place? To Andrianjaka, there's only one solution. One day, on the eve of the most crucial decision that Andrianjaka would make in his entire reign, he would utter a phrase which would become the unofficial slogan of all future generations of Merina kings. I am the sun, which cannot be divided. The message was clear. There could be no second source of power and legitimacy to landholding in the Merina kingdom. The king must possess a monopoly on this crucial feature of daily life. The sources of royal power could not be shared, not be divided, not be bargained, and not be compromised. 
With the uttering of this phrase, Andrei and Jaka initiated the final removal of the Fasimba from his kingdom. The Fasimba, including groups which must have included some of the king's distant relatives, were forced to pack up their possessions and leave the land of conspicuous living. Where they would go, nobody knew. They fanned out in all directions, finding refuge among all who would accept their arrival. With the expulsion of the Fasimba, Andrei and Jaka had banished the final reminder of his kingdom's formation, the vulnerable moment in history in which the existence of the invincible Fanjakana was not the dominant institution in Hofa life. However, dramatic developments and internal power struggles aside, what exactly was Andrianjaka now the all-originating sovereign of? For all this talk of being the indivisible son, the unchallenged king, he was still just an unchallenged king of a mere tiny kingdom in the mountainous interior, surrounded by larger threats on all sides. While he would not live to see it, Andrianjaka's descendants will grow their kingdom from this tertiary state into a truly unrivaled power in the island's interior. And at least initially, the source of this power will not be through violent conquest, but rather through efficient food production to support a rapidly growing population. Join us for our next episode, as we venture into the stories of the shapers of the land, the Merina kings who will organize the construction of the most intensive and impressive agricultural infrastructure that Madagascar had yet seen. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sabalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabadike, Sheuno Lorontimayen, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, and Hassan Fergiani, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.